On You Don't Know Dick, we, with the help of friends and special guests, look at the film and television career of actor Dick Miller. So let's begin. Welcome to You Don't Know Dick, the career of actor Dick Miller. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is the Angel of the Abyss, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I'm okay, Doug. How are you? Oh, you're making fun you're making fun of my podcasting voice, <laughs> Liam. I'm pretty good. How's it going, Doug? Well, considering everything, you know what? It's not too bad, Liam. And maybe it's because we have a great guest today and we have a great movie to talk about, and we're talking about one of our favorite subjects, the actor Dick Miller. But you know, sometimes I think of these podcasts, Liam, and this might feel a little silly to say, but I feel like this is like an oasis. You know, in the world, it's this desert of of really horrible things, but here's an oasis where I can spend time with my good friend Liam O'Donnell and talk about something I really enjoy and care about. I think that's fair. I think uh, <laughs> I think now that we're doing the Dick Miller podcast, I feel that way as well. Um, <laughs> when our entire podcast relationship was Eric Roberts, half the time it was a big burden, actually, to like get together and discuss how disappointing this particular movie was. But, uh, uh, you know, on the variety of podcasts we do for Cinema Smorgasbord, except for uh, a couple of Jackie Chan movies, it's been really fun. It's been really enjoyable yeah. to discuss the movies right. and uh, to engage with them and to talk with you about them. And only occasionally is it a bit of a burden. <laughs> I mean, Liam, I, I, I don't know if we approach these things differently, but I always see the fun of it is us and our interplay and our ability to speak with one another. So even if the movie is bad, I, I'm just as excited about the recording. I don't mind talking about a movie that's not good as long as I'm talking to you about that movie. It's it just depends on the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, obviously. <laughs> well, Liam, thankfully you don't have to rely on me, which is obviously a big burden to talk uh-huh. to me about these oh, movies. So that's, that's what I'm getting out of this. Our guest today is, among other things, a writer and producer, and I happily recommend her wonderful book, Monster Squad, celebrating the artists behind cinema's most memorable creatures, as well as the recent documentary about 80s horror, In Search of Darkness, which she both produced and appears in. It's Heather Wixon. How you doing, Heather? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure, and I mean that sincerely. Sometimes I don't mean it, but in this case, I mean it sincerely. <laughs> Just like my recommendation about your book was sincere. Oh, I read thank it. you. I love it. I heartily recommend it to anyone who cares about horror movies or you care about special effects makeup or just makeup in general. Uh, To me, it is an invaluable resource. I was introduced to so many personalities that I had kind of heard of on the peripheral, uh, especially because I'm a real fiend when it comes to like behind the scenes, uh, like uh, documentaries and things like that. But for me, it just really provided a lot of insight. Actually, uh, I want to start asking you, Heather, where did your interest in that sort of thing start, specifically horror makeup, horror special effects? Um, I mean, I think that just kind of came from being a fan, being very young, um, because it took a while. You know, I think one of my first like movie memories, um, I was three because I'm I'm quite older. um, And my mom, you know, back in the early 80s, you know, babysitters were expensive for single moms. And so like, I I have a vivid memory of her taking me uh, to see American Werewolf in London, which is not a movie I recommend to to show three year olds. That's not (laughs) that's not what I'm saying. Um, 
But I just remember, you know, like I'd always been really scared by monsters like when I was young, but I was also really drawn to them and I couldn't quite figure it out. And I remember one of the first things that sort of made me realize um, that there was people who do these things was when Michael Jackson's thriller came out, there was Mm -hmm. on the VHS tape, there was a behind the scenes documentary that they included as well. Um, And that was sort of my introduction to people being behind the monsters, which I think then helped me process monsters. Um, as a youngster, because I think I saw like the thing at like age five, which is again way too young to see the thing. <laughs> um, and you know that the scene with the dogs in the in the kennel, like still ter- like just completely terrified me as a kid. Um, but I think it was just sort of that. And then as I got older, um, you know, and I started writing professionally about like horror movies and things like that. You know, it was one of those things like I had started over the course of a few years doing this thing called Stan Winston Week. Um, where I would go um, in conjunction with the Stan Winston's School of Character Arts. Like, they would give me some behind-the-scenes material. I'd go out, try to get some interviews, and sort of do features kind of, you know, celebrating the movies and the effects and things like that. And then as I was, like, you know, talking with these different people, um, one in particular that really sort of struck me was Howard Berger, um, because he's known as, like, the K&B guy, but I had no idea until gosh, like 2012-ish, um, like how big of an influence Stan was on, it was on his personal life. Mm. And the only reason I realized that is because I interviewed him and we started to really talk about things. And then I realized, you know, as I was talking to Howard, he mentioned something like, you know, nobody ever asks me about these things. And then I was kind of thinking about it. I was like, you know, there's so many great, like how to do books on makeup effects. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we had, you know, most of us grew up with Fangoria. We could go and flip through the pages and getting to see, like, the artists be rock stars and getting to see, like, the really fun, gory creations. Um, but nobody really talked to them about their lives and their experiences and the things that they did, especially because a lot of these guys, you know, they put so much of themselves into the stuff that they were doing. Um, and I was just like, well, you know, I, I'm a big sucker for stories, like, of the people we don't really hear from very often. And I was mm-hmm. like, you know, I was like, why not like reach out? Cause I'd starting to gotten friendly, started to be really friendly with like a lot of folks in the industry. And I was like, you know, why not reach out to like 20 people, see if, you know, they would even be interested in talking to me. Uh, and the first two that I actually approached because I had gotten to know them over the years was Tom Woodruff Jr. And Alec Gillis. And I was like, well, if they say no, I, <laughs> then I have no, no hope at this point because you know, that should be the easy layup. And they were the first two to be like, yes, we'll do this. Um, And then it just kind of like sort of snowballed from there. And so I had kind of gotten my first 20 together, but I had put out other feelers just in case because I never count an interview done until like it's actually done. (laughs) Um, That's one thing I've learned in this industry. Like until the interview is actually finished, you don't never know if you actually have that interview. Um, And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, well, now I have like 36 interviews collected. What am I going to do with this? And then it just kind of kept growing from there. And I think I'm almost at 80. I think I've done 78 interviews. Um, And so, and the thing is, that's really great is, you know, there's a lot of similarities between the stories. You know, a lot of them grew up loving, you know, famous monsters of film, Fangoria, Mm -hmm. you know, they grew up loving, you know, Dick Smith and, you know, Jack Pierce and all those things. Um, But usually the journey to get to where they were going was always different. Like no two stories were the same. Um, and I just thought that was fascinating and I really wanted to focus on the folks that you didn't always hear from. 
Right. Um, you know, because like last year, like Rick Baker put out this huge two volume set that I, I desperately mm-hmm. want, but you know, it's like 170 bucks. <laughs> um, you know, which you should because it's Rick Baker, of course. I, you know, you're going to pay premium money, but I wanted to make sure that the people we weren't always hearing from got a chance to tell their stories because you know, as much as I adore Rick Baker and I respect him. You know, when you look at American Werewolf on London, sure, he is a genius. And the things that, you know, they were able to do in that movie is largely due to him. But there's also 40 guys on that set every single day, you know, who were just as integral to making sure that those effects, you know, were were as great as they were. I think Um, that's one of the real keys of of your book, Monster Squad, is that it celebrates beyond the Rick Bakers and the Rob Oteens and and the names that I think a lot of horror fans are – familiar with you're probably going to be familiar with a lot of the names in the book as well but it it really shows that it's a collaborative process that there's a a lot of kind of brains that are working together to make a lot of this work and that's this this even goes beyond your book and a lot of your work i think it really celebrates the fact that this isn't like a, a single name that's making these things happen yeah and it's one of those like i have to fight myself from the urge of like being like uh i don't i don't even know like you know little miscorrections or whatever, but like a lot of times, like I'll see online, like somebody would be like, Oh, look at the predator created by Stan Winston. And like, no mm. offense to Stan Winston. Yes, he did drawings, you know, and actually it was Jim Cameron who actually told him to put the mandibles in the mouth. Um, but it was actually like Steve Wang and Matt Rose, who were the guys who basically built that suit, did the, you know, did that amazing paint job. And were like the guys who were like spent like three days straight with like two hours of sleep every night, like trying to make sure that thing was done. And again, no disrespect to, to Stan. Um, but I think a lot of when you just sort of had those big encompassing names that kind of go over these projects, you sort of lose the other artists in there, which kind of bummed me out. So, sure. and it was kind of, you know, and that's the thing, like, you know, I went into this process sort of having preconceived ideas about like things that, you know, you read on Wikipedia or you just sort of, you know, read, and different articles and things. And I learned so much about like, you know, all these different aspects of that, you know, sort of that industry that really weren't talked about, um, that sort of kind of got glossed over. And that really gave me a new appreciation for, you know, as you mentioned, like the collaborative process that it is. Um, so it's been, it's been like four and a half years of my life now. Um, so I'm just, I'm, I'm happy to sort of be crossing that finish line, but of course everyone's like, well, what are you going to do next? I'm like, nothing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, as I mentioned when we were offline, you know, I've got the, I, I ended up, um, the next books are coming out through a different publisher now than my first book. Um, and you know, once those are kind of out, like they're going to sort of do them like every six months over like the next couple of years, I'm going to take a little bit of a breather. <laughs> like I just, you know, it's, it's, it's been a wonderful journey. Um, by the time all this is said and done, it'll probably be like almost six years in. Um, but I also do, you know, I want, I, I want to kind of step back a little bit, enjoy it for a while before I even think about something like that again. Um, but you know, it's one of those, like, I, I always tell people like, because they're like, Oh, you know, how did you, you know, everybody thinks that like there's like some sort of magic like key to unlocking the door to being able to do something like this. And I would tell anybody listening, anybody can do this. Anybody can go out and write a book. There's so many different ways. There's so many great, like, uh, sort of smaller publishers. And I, again, I don't mean that like in a, a denigrating way, but like mm-hmm. that are willing to take chances with first time writers because I had never written a book before. And I found a publisher who was willing to take a chance with me. Um, and so I would tell anybody, like, if you want to do this, just, just write it, Sure. you know, because eventually it'll either find a home or there's so many great ways to self-publish these days. Like, don't let the quote unquote process intimidate you because there is no process. Just write about what you love 
and the rest of itself and the rest of it is going to work itself out. Liam, just going over to you two for a second. I know that you're a fan of horror movies and a lot of different genre films, but do you remember the the first time that you were aware of your own curiosity about how 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 these creatures and how these effects actually were made, that this was something that, that you had an interest in? Did you grow up with things like Fangoria, or was, did it come a little bit later for you? Well, I didn't grow up with Fangoria, I, and I have no idea why. I think I eventually I, I noticed it uh, at the local uh, newsstand, which is weird sure. to talk about dating yourself, that there was a newsstand, <laughs> Pete's newsstand in my town. Um, <laughs> little little kid out in front reading his comic books, right, on a, on a, on a mm-hmm. milk crate. Mm-hmm. Is that how it was, Liam? Uh, it was more uh, me buying uh, tasty cakes and then trying to <laughs> slyly see if any of the uh, breasts were sticking out on the nudie mags up top. Nice. Absolutely. They were, they were high and everything was just covered it up and I'd be like, can I see anything up there? I don't think I can. Um, <laughs> but yeah, for whatever reason, I never really dipped into Fangoria. Um, my interest in horror uh, didn't include the special effects question until... Uh, my mom got at the library for me one of these like, uh, you know, Masters of Horror special effects. It was like a book about that sort of thing. And I started reading it and suddenly realized like, oh, yeah, of course, there are people who do this. That's interesting. <laughs> and it, it, it had just not really been a thing in my life till I was probably like 13 at the time, 14. Uh, but I had been into horror for a while. Uh, but none of the particular names stuck out to me, which is kind of weird, right? Like, even though I loved, um, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street and uh, American World of London and a lot of movies that had, you know, some big special effects stuff, uh, it wasn't until uh, I really got into Romero, which I, I guess I had been into previously because I, Night of the Living Dead was one of the first horror movies I saw, but I didn't know who he was as a person. And then once I did, it was pretty quick to be like, oh, yeah, Tom Savini, that was the first name I sort of knew, even though I hadn't seen like his other stuff for quite a while. Actually, he was just the first kind of like character I noticed as a sure. as a as a mm-hmm. special effects guy. Um, but since then, I've, I've gotten to know a few people. Um, it's it's something I probably should be more interested in uh, in, in some ways. <laughs> well, I'm just saying because I care about filmmaking but i actually find i i can relate to directing and i can relate to uh writing a script and i can relate even to like um cinematography having done a little bit of like camera work myself there's something about special effects that i've like if 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 you said to me doug let's make a horror movie that would be (laughs) the part that i'm like i don't know I don't know what to do about that. Like, I have no. It's it's so alien to me that um, I have I, I have trouble like understanding it. And all those people seem like magicians. The fact that they even could be like figure out the worst possible special effects. I'm like, well, that's magic. You're a, you're a magician. <laughs> I mean, I think that's one of the interesting things about reading interviews with some of these quote unquote magicians, right? I mean, yeah, it in some ways it it maybe takes away some of that magic, but in other ways I think it adds to it simply because you have more of a respect for the skill level that's on display. I you know, when I was involved with making a movie a number of years back, you you know, you really do start to learn how to bridge those knowledge gaps and you start to try to find answers to those questions and it can be really I mean, you do certainly reach the limits of your own knowledge, but you really do develop uh, skills as you're going along as well. The thing that got me interested in 
kind of horror special effects. And this is going to sound a little strange because I, kind of notoriously on this show, I didn't watch a lot of horror movies as a kid. I was scared of them, very much so, uh, right up until in, it, you know I was like 11 or 12 years old. I had these cards, these trading cards called Fright Flicks. Liam, do you remember these right. uh, yeah, cards? yeah, yeah, yeah. And they just had images from different horror movies on them, uh, on the front, and then on the back they had like little funny kind of taglines and I guess a little bit of information about the movie. But th- they'd have pictures from things like Fright Night and Pumpkinhead and the Nightmare on Elm Street movies on it. And to me, they were like, they felt so dangerous. And I know that sounds very silly, I'm sure, to anyone listening right now. But just having these cards, which again... The very concept of selling these images of these hard R-rated movies to children, I mean, it, it was a different era. But to me, it, it kind of fueled my fascination with how these things were made, how these creatures were made. And it's something that really went on right up until, you know, that a lot of that knowledge was kind of uh, more available. And I, just like yourself, Liam, I did not grow up with Fangoria because even my local newsstand didn't have it. But it was a case where I was always fascinated with it. And if I saw books about it, and if I saw articles about it, it was something that I would just like, I would I would grab onto all of it. And of course, once the internet became a little bit more uh, accessible, it was something that I would be able to pursue all the time. But believe it or not, though we are here to talk about special effects, especially in the context of the movie that we're here to talk about, Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight from the year 1995, uh, we're here specifically to talk about the actor Dick Miller. Uh, Now, Heather, I'm sure as a fan of the genre that you're pretty familiar with Dick Miller as an actor. Do you have any favorite Dick Miller performances? And do you have any memories of when you were first kind of aware of him as a performer? Um, I mean, I think probably for most kids it's probably gremlins is like sort of that first one um that you really so it's like super when i became aware uh, of (laughs) dick miller um and it was funny because like that was right around the age when i really started to put it together that like there were directors that like kept making movies i don't know how to explain it but like it was like you know after seeing gremlins i think like i don't remember what my next joe dante movie was i mean it it wasn't. It might have been like inner space or something like when that. When I was a kid, Explorers was the movie that my brothers and I would just watch again and again. It just felt like a perfect kids movie. And then as I got older, it seemed like people didn't have that experience. That Explorers was sort of the the one that wasn't as well respected. But now, as we've moved along, I think Explorers has really regained a lot of its mm. reputation. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, but it was interesting because it re- that's when I started to realize, like uh, with Joe Dante and also with John Carpenter, that they would often use like the same actors because sure. I'd start noticing like familiar faces popping up, and then Dick Miller kind of became the Joe Dante guy in my head, um, which is you know funny because like obviously they both kind of came up in the Corman school uh, sure. together as well. So um, I would say definitely Gremlins was sort of my first, and then I remember. When I first moved out to L.A., um, I was watching, like, Turner Classic Movies one night, and I think it was A Bucket of Blood was on. Sure. And that's when, like, it clicked with me with the name Walter Paisley, because, like, I'd, I'd seen, like, you know, him pop up as Walter, as the character named Walter in other things, and I was like, wait, so this all stems back to the late 1950s? Like, that, to me, was kind of <laughs> mind-blowing. And I was like, and I was thinking about it even back then, where I was like, I don't know of another actor who was playing, I don't want to say the same character, but like a character with that name, like that sort of carried through all these different decades. Um, I just thought it was really fascinating and interesting. And I was like, well, if anybody's worthy of that, you know, it's Dick Miller. Um, You know, I only got to ever meet him once really briefly and he was the sweetest man ever, (laughs) Um, you know, and, you know, from there, of course, like, you know, seeing like Little Shop of Horrors, 
um, because I was I grew up super obsessed with the musical from the 80s. Um, <laughs> so going back and then discovering like the original Little Shop of Horrors was really fun, um, you know, and just kind of, you know, when you look at the things that he was doing, I mean, the fact that he worked through like seven different decades or something like that, it like it kind of blows your mind a little bit. Um, you know, and I think the only person who really could kind of match that was like somebody like Harry Dean Stanton. Sure. Um, and I think that that just shows that like those two guys, you know, Dick and Harry were both like actors of a different caliber and of a different generation. And I think that's why, you know, you could sit there and still talk about, you know, the things that they were able to contribute because nobody was doing, you know, there's just nobody who has that, that sort of, I don't want to say it factor because that sounds so cliche, <laughs> but you know, you know, when you're a kid and you're watching Gremlins 2 and the first time Mr. Futterman shows up again, like you just, you light up because it's, it's Dick, you know, mm. and it's just, it's always such a pleasure to see him on the screen. So yeah, he was, he, he's been a big fan, favorite of mine. And I actually, when you came to me, I was really trying to think about like, gosh, you know, what do I, you know, what, what do I want to, you know, what do I want to go and dive into? And honestly, I really think his role in Demon Knight is one of my all-time favorites. For as many Absolutely. great things he's done with with Joe Dante over the years and other filmmakers that he's worked with like over and over again, um, I really think his work in Demon Knight was a real standout, especially because a lot of times he was sort of like a guy that would kind of come in for a few scenes. Sure. Or he was sort of, I don't want to say pushed back, but you know, he was there as sort of like a supporting you know, person. And I really yeah. think demon knight kind of gives him a lot more to do than we normally saw because he becomes more than just an actor because of people in the fandom's knowledge of who he is what you find in a lot of his particularly in his later appearances are he shows up because people watching it's like the wilhelm screen right it's very much like there's dick miller he that we know who he is we know the kind of roles he does while in demon knight this is a three-dimensional performance it's, it's an actual you know this is someone who you can see is cast for his abilities as an actor, and he gives a real performance in it. And it's one of the things that's most refreshing about this uh, this movie, Demon Knight. And it's also, for this particular podcast, we've talked about now A Bucket of Blood, and we've talked about Gremlins, and now we're talking about a 1990s role, which might be the definitive Dick Miller role of the 1990s. That might be somewhat controversial to say, but I don't think so. I think it's a real strong performance, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But before we do, I just want to talk a little bit about Tales from the Crypt, because I don't know. I, I wonder if uh, a lot of people who uh, did not grow up on the Tales from the Crypt comics or didn't grow up with the Tales from the Crypt anthology series, whether they still uh, have as much of a grasp on how influential those things were. Um, and the very fact that so many big names were attached to that TV series should give you a strong sense of how influential those comics were, even if you didn't know from things like Creepshow or uh, Tales from the Dark Side and, and the influence that it had on those. Liam, I just want to go over to you for a second. How aware of Tales from the Crypt were you when the TV series started in the, uh, I think it was the late 80s? Oh, man. I, I was aware that the TV show existed because of friends of my mom who had you know cable we didn't sure. even have cable at that point <laughs> we were still on the on the the antenna you know um and uh i remember at a certain point they put out collections of the show on mm -hmm. home video and i and i rented some of those um but there was something about the crypt keeper where he was a character that people knew about even if they didn't watch the show absolutely so like pretty 
shortly after the show premiered, like before Demon Knight came out, I knew who the Crypt Keeper was. But I don't know if I had seen many episodes of Tales from the Crypt before Demon Knight came out. Does that make sense? Because I, sure. I saw Demon Knight not in the theater, but pretty quickly after it was out on home video, I saw it because I was pretty voracious when it came to horror at that time. Uh, but uh, just just something about the Crypt Keeper as a character. Now, the comics that inspired it, I knew they were a thing. I was a comic nerd. <laughs> I had seen them behind plastic at the shop. I knew that they were there. I knew that there were other sort of uh, uh, EC Comics vibe horror stuff. But, you know, as we've talked about on other podcasts that we've been on, Doug, I was buying X-Men and Alpha Flight. That was it. <laughs> that was my world. And I wasn't trying to get into horror comic books at all. <laughs> uh, I had a very general awareness of Tales from the Crypt as a thing. I was still fairly young when the show started, but one of the things I was obsessed with, even though I could not watch horror movies, again, I was too scared to watch them, they had an award show in the early 90s called the Horror Hall of Fame that was uh, broadcast out of Universal Studios, and the Crypt Keeper was on that show as like the, not just a presenter, I think it was almost like an alternate host. Robert England was the host of the show, but they keep cutting back to the, uh, the Crypt Keeper, and you're right. Like the Crypt Keeper was like a mainstream thing at that time to the point where they made a cartoon show and he actually released an album, I think, as well. So, I mean, it was a big deal. It's kind of hard to believe that an anthology show hit, especially an anthology show which had this sort of content, hit a mainstream kind of level. And whether it was beyond HBO and it had a lot of kind of A-list actors in it, episodes directed by famous directors, including people like Arnold Schwarzenegger, it was a really strange time. I know they've been trying to bring Tales from the Crypt as a uh, TV property back over the last few years with some difficulty. It does kind of feel like we're on the edge of anthology shows making a bit of a comeback. Heather, what was your familiarity with, uh, with, with Tales from the Crypt as a property when the show was on? Um, I knew of the comics. Um, I also did not really grow up with cable, so I didn't have access to HBO when it was, you know, when the show first started. Um, but I did have my best friend's dad. He had like a friend who would always like tape stuff for us and sure. then he'd bring home the tapes. And so every once in a while we would get lucky and get a few episodes of Tales from the Crypt. Um, so I wasn't able to be like a regular viewer of it uh, growing up. But as I got older, you know, I, I remember gosh, I want to say like early 2000s. I think there was like, that's when they started to do that initial DVD set. Sure. Um, and so like, I remember from family video of all places, uh, <laughs> renting like the first two seasons, um, which was really fun. And it was, it, what, what I kind of really love about the Tales from the Crypt is the energy that it brings. Sure. Um, it's when I was rewatching Demon Knight last night, it's funny to me because it's, it's especially with the Crypt Keeper himself, it's kind of like, like the horror version of like dad jokes and like dad puns that like, you know, like dads would make, but like they have like a little <laughs> bit of a like, you know, he's like, we're going to the screen here. And like, that's just, it, you know, it's so funny and cute. But like, you know, if you're like a teenager and your dad's like throwing jokes like that, you just roll your eyes and you're like, okay, whatever. But when the Crypt Keeper <laughs> says it, it's awesome and funny and hilarious. Um, so yeah, I, it's, it's one of those that kind of, you know, has kind of came late to me. And then a few years ago, Voodoo, um, every year at Halloween, they always do like all these different sales through October. Sure. So I've been sort of collecting the different seasons on Voodoo over the last few years. So I think I'm up to season four because um, like the like two or three years ago, they had season one and season two for like five dollars each. 
which is like the bargain of a lifetime. Sure. I have no idea when we're going to see Blu-rays for it because I know there's all sorts of rights issues and yeah, things like absolutely. that. Um, you know, so the fact that at least I can own them digitally for now uh, makes me happy. So, um, but yeah, so I always tell people to keep an eye on Voodoo um, during October because you can always get some really good deals. But specifically, being able to kind of collect the Tales from the Crypt stuff, um, I think it's kind of like the biggest draw for me is because again, I just, you know, one, if you want to go back and try to collect the DVDs, like secondhand, like now they're like, you know, you're going to spend like 40 to $50 a season, sure. which like is ridiculous to me, <laughs> you know, and the DVDs are fine, but they don't, you know, the, 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 the masters that they use for the digital files are so much better. Right. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's a show that I, I love the fact that like, I don't know, there's something really great about anthology television shows, um, or not even anthology. Cause I don't know if that necessarily fits, but like, um, I mean, I guess it does, but it's, it's, it's weird what, depending on what your, an, your definition of anthology is, Sure. but I love the fact that like you can go and you can watch Tales from the Crypt or you can watch Twilight Zone or either iterations of like the Alfred Hitchcock shows and they all still work and they're all yeah. still really fun and engaging. Um, it's so know. strange. We live in an era where short films have been devalued to a very great extent, which is really sad for me. I love short films, yeah. but well, I, I do think that there's an, uh, there's an awareness that the ability to tell a satisfactory and uh, rewarding story in a short amount of time, I think it's something that we still respect a lot. And I think anthology films give you a taste of that and hopefully uh, allow people to, to have an appreciation for shorter works. My appreciation for Tales from the Crypt came from kind of a different direction than either of you. I was really interested in it, especially when I got into horror movies, but had no way to access it at all until they started to show episodes in the evening on the CBC here in Canada, of all things, our publicly broadcasted uh, television station, and they would show versions of the episodes with the violence and nudity cut out of them. Uh, which is odd, because the CBC was able to show uh, R-rated movies in the evening if they wanted to, but I guess, I don't know if it ever became syndicated, but there was obviously versions of the episodes that were out there that were cut to shreds. So oh. I, I, I actually, when I finally started to watch Tales from the Crypt, I was like, this is weird. It's like a neutered version of what I thought it was going to be, not realizing that all, all of it was cut out. There's a kind of well-known episode of the show which has Roger Daltrey from The Who in it, and Steve Buscemi is in that episode as well. And uh, that I remember in particular, I was like, oh, this is going to be great. I'm sitting down to watch it, and it's almost incomprehensible because of everything that's been cut out of it. And I didn't know what the big deal was until I started, actually, until I watched the DVDs years later. I'm like, oh, I wasn't even watching the show. I was watching something else entirely. Uh, for those who maybe aren't as familiar with Tales from the Crypt, it was, as we mentioned, a series that was based on the EC comics of the 1950s. Uh, it had a kind of a, a murderer's row of producers, including Richard Donner, Walter Hill, Joel Silver, and Robert Zemeckis. And they had, again, like I said, A-list performers and directors who were making these adaptations of these comics, which usually uh, they were kind of simple parables that had a, a kind of a, a, a moral lesson at their core. Uh, and then there was a lot of success with that. And at some point they decided that they were going to branch into making films. And the first Tales from the Crypt film was Demon Knight in 1995. Let us take our first break. When we return, we're going to come back and talk with Heather, with Liam, about Demon Knight. I'm not going to hurt you. I lied. It stars Billy Zane from Dead Calm, William Sadler from Die Hard 2, and Jada Pinkett from Menace. 
Ooh, I love those titles. And you'll love Demon Knight. The demons are here! And ladies, if you think Demon Knight is too gross and yucky... Whoa! Thank you! <laughs> A man on the run is hunted by a demon known as the Collector. In 1995's Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight, directed by Ernest Dickerson, who you might know from the film Juice or Surviving the Game, which is a personal favorite of mine, as well as Bulletproof uh, and Bones, another horror film from the year 2001, uh, written by Ethan Reif and Cyrus Voris, who, uh, the pair who went on to write the, well, I guess create the characters for the Kung Fu Panda movie. Uh, I, actually, I think it's based on a book, so at least they wrote the, the initial draft of Kung Fu Panda, as well as the 2010 Ridley Scott Robin Hood, uh, as well as Mark Bishop, who, um, who uh, wrote the film Escape from Safe Haven from 1989. Uh, really great cast. Uh, for those who haven't seen Demon Knight, or even those who have, including, of course, Billy Zane and William Sadler, um, and Jada Pinkett-Smith, CCH Pounders here, of course, Dick Miller, uh, and uh, some other familiar faces as well, including, of course, Charles Fleischer, Roger Rabbit himself on display. Uh, it's a really wonderful horror movie. It is one that I think uh, I unfairly judged. I feel bad about it now. In the mid-90s, I was such a snob. What a little jerk I was, where this felt like this mainstream Hollywood horror. Of course, I'm not going to go see that. It's actually surprising revisiting it. A, how much really great physical effects are on display in it. Uh, B, how kind of different it was from the horror that was common in Hollywood in the mid-90s. And the quality of that, I think we can all agree, was pretty mixed at that time. This is a movie that, that goes pretty hard and really has a great mythology behind it as well. It's incredibly entertaining, particularly Billy Zane as the collector. A really great character. Um, and, and William Sadler as well, an actor who I think is greatly undervalued, both as a... Uh, certainly he, he gets a lot of respect as a villainous performer, but I think he can play the hero just as well as well. So I want to start with both of you. Starting with you, Heather, what are your thoughts on Demon Knight? Do you remember the first time you saw it, and what do you think about it now? Uh, yes, I do remember the first time I saw it. I remember, because um, I'm a kid who grew up going to the drive-in, so I remember when our drive-in um, out in Illinois, um, Not because I, I used to, when I was really little, I used to go to the twin drive-in, which was in Wheeling, um, and then once I moved a little further out in the Twin had closed, I started going to the Cascade Drive-In, which is out in West Chicago, uh, which I think is now officially closed as well, which makes me sad. Um, and I remember the opening weekend, because they would op open back up in March, and the opening weekend was Demon Night. And at that time in my, um, at that time in my life, um, I was actually dating this guy who worked at the drive-in, so that was perfect. <laughs> like, I don't know why things didn't work out, but whatever. Um, so I remember going opening weekend, and it was like, I had this really terrible car. Like my first car was awful. Um, and it was like, it was an 84 Ford Tempo. The car actually didn't reverse. So if I had to park anywhere, I had to park somewhere that I could pull through because that's just, I couldn't reverse the car. I had like no defogger or anything like that. The ceiling was like, like ballooning in on me because it was separating from the fabric was separating. So it was like a, it was a piece of crap basically. Um, and I remember sitting there and it was like pouring rain that weekend, but I was like, I was undeterred. I was going to see demon night. And I remember literally sitting there like half the movie, like wiping my windows down. And most people would just leave. I was not leaving. Um, <laughs> and it was just so perfect because it was just pouring and I was by myself and it was like, it was just like this perfect sort of little magical experience. 
Um, and I just, I was like absolutely in love with this movie. And I, in fact, I think I went back the next night cause I could get in for free. Um, and it wasn't raining the second night. So that was good. Um, but I just remember like sitting there and just being like completely in awe. And I think one of the things, um, one of the reasons that the movie works as well as it does is I think that Ernest's um, background as a cinematographer really yes, serves the movie absolutely. well, because you need, when you have effects like that and you have, and you're blending effects in action, as much as you do in Demonite, you need somebody who knows how to move the camera, who knows how to, you know, achieve these things in camera, you know, especially back then because, you know, digital effects were sort of limited. Um, I mean, there is some, there are some in this film, but it's not like we're talking about like Avengers or anything these days. Sure. Of course. Um, and I think his background, you know, working with Spike Lee for all those years and shooting, you know, obviously with other folks as well, um, really works in the favor of this movie because it moves. It just moves at this really great pace. There is not a single like solitary second of that movie is wasted. Um, and I think the reason it's so impressive is because those effect scenes are so effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a huge testament to Dickerson being completely open to being collaborative with Todd Masters, who uh, was basically the you know, sort of the lead guy on the effects. Um, and now he owns Masters Effects and does all kinds of amazing stuff. Um, <laughs> not that this wasn't amazing, but, um, and I think the funny thing is like a lot of people don't know, realize this, is that when they were first doing this movie, because they were, you know, trying to sort of watch the budget because they weren't sure, sure how the movie was going to do, initially producers didn't want demons in the movie. Um, <laughs> they wanted a bunch of men in black type guys in suits with sunglasses. And that's that's that was their idea of demons. And I think Ernest and Todd both pushed back um, to Gil Adler and Joel Silver and like, you cannot make a movie that says has demon in the title and not give people demons like people are going to be pissed. And they're right, because like as you know, as cool as, you know, Billy Zane is and, you know, because he's pretty much mostly human for ninety nine point nine percent of that movie until that final shot, like you can't have an entire cast running around looking like Billy Zane. Like, right. I mean, I, I personally, in a per, on a personal level, I probably would love it. But like, <laughs> you know, you want demons in a movie about demons. Like, that's just how it goes. Um, so I'm really grateful that they were, they decided to sort of push back against that because like, you're talking about a completely different movie that, you know, I don't think would have worked as well because one of the best scenes, I think, in that whole thing is, you know, the birthing scene. Absolutely. Um, and again, it's one of those like, you know, it's all in camera, all practical, those scenes. Um, and the way that they shoot it, it's so effective and convincing because, you know, they, they cut just at the right times. They use shadows really well. Um, and it's all believable. Like, it's still, you know, this is a movie that's, what, 25 years old now? And it still works just as well now as it did then, um, which I think is a huge testament to, you know, both Ernest and Todd on that. Um, but yeah, I think the inc- I think the inclusion of demons in this. I mean, obviously with the title and looking back on it, it's ridiculous to even think of it without the demon right? characters. But I mean, it makes the movie because as great as Billy Zane is in this movie, and he's terrific, I think it might be his best performance, and I know it's one of his favorites, but it, it, it's a case where the the difference between this suave, charming, hilarious character and these revolting demons that are behind him, that is what makes a lot of the, the kind of villainous part of this movie work, where you have that threat immediately behind him, but he's still in front of it, and he brings this charm and this humor to the role. I mean, it's just, it's just not the same movie without that element there, and it, it's one of the things that I think really draws me to it. Just, just going back into the history of what 
became Demon Knight. This was a script that was around for uh, quite a few years, going right back to 1987. Originally, it was going to be turned into a movie by Tom Holland, the director of Child's Play. Then it went into the hands of Mary Lambert, who directed, of course, Pet Cemetery. Uh, But she went on to do Pet Cemetery 2 instead, and then that made it particularly difficult. This was almost made for Full Moon, Charles Band's Full Moon features in the 90s. I guess it would have been made in Romania. (laughs) I was going to say, you can't make this movie for $500. I don't know what Charles would have done with that to me. Uh, but eventually it did end up, uh, I guess, in the hands of Joel Silver, and uh, th- it was decided that it was going to be massaged into a Tales from the Crypt feature. Now, one of the interesting things about this movie is that it doesn't really follow the morality play that you usually see in uh, the Tales from the Crypt TV series, and it wasn't based, obviously, on a comic book. Uh, so this was a full uh, kind of original property that had the tone that they were looking for, that mix of uh, horror and comedy, uh, again, something that I still have a lot of affection for when done well. Liam O'Donnell, what was your initial experience with Demon Knight, and how do you feel about it now having revisited it? I think that the thing you just pointed out was really important to me at the time, because when I first watched Tales from the Crypt, the morality play aspect of a lot of the stories, and and I don't know enough about the show to know if that's a universal thing, but I know that that was a common element, was a bit of a turnoff for me. It didn't ruin the show for me, but I didn't like it. And I went into this movie thinking, like, maybe that was going to be what we were going to get. I wasn't sure what the title meant. You know what I mean? I I still think it's interesting. Um, I don't know how many people know what to expect from a movie called demon knight k and i you know what i mean like it's like okay all right so who's the demon? you know what i mean like so <laughs> i i kind of went in like not sure about anything uh and pretty quickly it became one of my favorite horror rentals i probably saw it uh you know like four or five times uh paying to get it out of a you know video store sure uh and then when it was released uh, a few years ago now, I don't, I don't remember when exactly, on uh, Scream, is Scream Factory put that, the, they, they put did, out both yeah. those? Yeah, yeah, they did, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, got the, I got a free copy to review, wrote that review pretty quickly. Weirdly enough, my <laughs> review of Bordello of Blood never never came. <laughs> uh, I, got the, I got the Blu-ray, but I never wrote the review, I don't know why. Uh, but that Demon Knight review, I was stoked to write. Uh, I've watched that blue quite a few times since then. Um, I was at a horathon where they played Demon Knight, and it woke me up. Like I, I don't even remember what time they played it, but I was like, "Yes, okay, I'm in." You know, it's just always been. I, I don't, I don't want to go so far as to say that I don't love '90s movies, but there are a lot of '90s horror films I am not a big fan of, and. Uh, this being, you know, 95 smack in the middle, uh, you know, uh, I, I was 16 at the time when this came out, um, for whatever reason, this has always stood out to me as the best possible scenario from this time period. Yeah. <laughs> that it's like the shining example and maybe, you know, on a long enough timeline, is it as important to me as some other horror films that are more kind of like classic for what I like. I I don't know. I don't, maybe not, but this is for me, the best option of this sort of, it's like the, the shining diamond. And I wouldn't go so far as to say in the rough, I'm not, I'm not saying the whole decade is bad, but um, I, I don't have as many things from this decade that I love the way that I love this movie. 
Uh, it's been really interesting revisiting it. Uh, actually, I had a similar experience to you, Liam. Just last year, I was at an all-night horror fest uh, in a theater in Toronto, and they showed Demon Knight as the, I think it was the second last movie, and it was like maybe 9 a.m., 10 a.m. Everyone was exhausted. It's a great movie to kind of pick you up, and because it just it, it moves very quickly, it is very engaging, and it really... Uh, celebrates horror. In some ways, it feels more like a throwback to the 80s than the 1950s when you watch right. it. One of the things I like about it, and this might be something that you uh, responded to, Liam, is that in those morality-type plays that that played out in the 1950s EC comics, a character um, like we have uh, uh, here with Jada Pinkett Smith's character, who is explicitly a criminal and is being punished by having to do kind of like a, a work placement uh, in, in the movie... You know, she would be punished for being a criminal. But here, you know, she's shown to be someone who, despite the fact that she is a thief and is admitted as such, you know, there isn't any kind of question about whether she did the things that she was accused of, that she's still a good person and that she can still, you know, uh, uh, actually be very heroic in the movie. And actually, the suggestion is after the events of the movie as well. So, I mean, I really like the fact that they kind of ditch that part that you maybe found a little bit frustrating sometimes. And this movie was we're just more committed to telling a strong story. And that's one of the things I like about this movie as well, is that there's a real mythology that's built within it. I know William Sadler right. really loved that about his character as well. I would have loved to have seen, instead of them moving on to Bordello of Blood, to continue on the story of Demon Knight and have, have that. Uh, yeah, I think there's actually a lot more story to be told there. Uh, one thing that, that, that aside from the storyline structure and the humor and the special effects, one of the things that really makes this film work is that it has a really strong cast. We've already talked a little bit about Billy Zane, who I think is, I think a lot of people would agree, the highlight of this movie. But the supporting cast is terrific as well. Jada Pinkett Smith, as I mentioned. CCH Pounder, who I love always in every movie. Uh, we're going to talk about Dick Miller in a moment, but we have Thomas Hayden Church here. Uh, is there any performances, Heather, that really stuck out for you in this movie, uh, aside from Billy Zane? Um, I mean, I kind of feel like all of them do in a, yeah, in a right. certain way. Um, it is a really great, really great ensemble. Um, because one, like I, cause like, I don't know if you guys ever used to watch the TV show, Ned and Stacy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny. Cause like everybody always talks about like Tom Satan church was sideways, which I actually hate sideways. I know that's <laughs> crazy to even say. Um, but whenever people talk about him, I'm like, I'm like, oh, it's Ned from Ned and Stacy because that was him and Deborah Messing. And I love that show. I watched a lot of wings when I was a kid too. So. Ah, yes. <laughs> So yeah, he, I was going to say, I basically know him wings and then uh, a, a total gap and then sideways. Like, I don't, <laughs> it was like, I saw sideways at the theater and was like, hey, it's that guy from wings. Where has he been? <laughs> you know, for him, for me, he was like Tony Shalhoub in that. I know who also appeared on wings, uh, but he was an actor that at the time everyone knew. Like the, the general consensus was these actors are way too good to be on these shows that they're on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he's always trying to like, I, one of my favorite lines is when he walks in, he's like, even in motel people, uh, I don't know why that just always <laughs> sticks out in my head. Um, I, I really, I actually think I really love Brenda Bakke in this movie. Um, mm-hmm. and the thing is, it's really tough is that, um, when I interviewed, um, a lot of the cast for the articles that I did for this, um, and I don't think I put this in there, but I know she had a lot of issues with Joel Silver because Joel mm. Silver was a very prototypical 80s producer sure. where he wanted lots of action and lots and lots of nudity, um, which I think, you know, as we talk about the Uncle Willie's, you know, scene later on. Sure. I mean, that's very evident right there. Um, and he really 
I think he kind of just beat her up over wanting more nudity out of her because she was, you know, a quote unquote whore as they reference her very often in that movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think she gives Cordelia this, there's a really soulful performance going on with her. Like she's Mm -hmm. funny and she's sexy and, you know, she's oozing this sort of, you know, desperation at times, but there's something really beautiful and sad about her too. Um, which of course we see it when she's manipulated by the collector. Um, but I think she kind of gets overlooked a lot in the movie as well. Um, and I also really like, you know, it, it really is sort of this ragtag misfits in this movie, because like, if you look at somebody like Charles Fleischer, who, you know, most of us know now is like the voice of Roger Rabbit or, you know, he was in Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, Zodiac. <laughs> Zodiac, yes. Um, you know, but like Wally is also pretty much a, a sort of a sad sack character sure. too. Absolutely. Um, and one thing I wanted to mention when you were talking about Geraldine and Jada Pinkett's character in this movie, um, I really think that, you know, as entertaining and as fun as this movie is, um, I think it, it says something really interesting about, um, sort of the, 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 the system that's in place to keep people who may have screwed up, who may have gone to jail, um, you know, and then try to kind of get back out there into the population. And we sort of, you know, we don't really want to give them redemption. Sure. Um, we, you know, society sort of just always looks at them that certain way. And I think in its own very smart and subtle way, like this was sort of Ernest's, you know, response to the things that we were seeing with the correctional uh, system here in in the U.S. um, in the 90s in particular, because we were seeing, you know, so many people of color being locked up for the stupidest crimes. I mean, we have people who are still who've been locked up for over 20 years for the most petty, stupid things ever, Um, you know, especially when it comes to like drug offenses and things like that, where, you know, I live in California, where, you know, now you can run around in your car with like a whole ounce of weed in your car and like, there's people who had like a dime bag of it and on, you know, on them in, you know, 15 years ago and they're still in jail, which is yeah. ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, but I think it's, it, there's just such a subtle touch to what he does with this, with her character in particular, where, you know, we're so meant to look down as a society and people who have gone through the penal system and ultimately she comes out the hero. And I think that's really brilliant and really smart. And again, I think, something that doesn't get talked about enough um, that for as much as, you know, it's a great horror time, great effects, killer soundtrack. Um, it has a really smart social commentary to it as well, yeah. um, which I really love. Um, and I do love uh, also, you know, as you mentioned Sadler being the hero as well, um, you know, because he is such a great villain at times, or he, you know, obviously for most of us also became, you know, <laughs> the embodiment of death, um, just to get Love to that. see him sort of play the straight guy here and sort of really like the gristled old man. who's just, you know, he's seen, he's seen some stuff, you know, the fact that they can tease him as the villain because we know we recognize him as a villain in so many films. I think that move, the movie really works because of that as well. Right. Billy Zane being this more clean cut, very handsome guy hey they try to tease it a little bit yeah exactly that hey maybe he is a good guy of course if you're a horror fan you probably recognize right away (laughs) what direction this is going i will say that the the only thing that rubs me the wrong way about this movie and and feel free to disagree with me on this is the the reveal that charles fleischer's postman character was going to go on a rampage that it happens in the last bit of the movie it does play into the finale but the for those who did not live through the early 90s 
There were a number oh, of news stories. Postal. Yeah. yeah, there was a, a a reputation because of a few very violent incidents in the U.S. Uh, that uh, that postal employees uh, suffering from mental illness, they would maybe because of the stresses of the job or whatever, they would have mass shootings involving people who work for the post office. And uh, I feel like even by the mid nineties, that was a that was a passe type thing that people, you know, it was kind of old news, but maybe it's because this, this script was a little old as well. But we find out that Charles Fleischer's character, who is a postman who gets fired, and he's obviously a bit of a sad sack, but a fairly sympathetic character, it's revealed that, A, the thing that he got fired for, stealing people's mail, was something he was actually doing, and B, that he had gathered a bunch of guns and uh, grenades. So so to me, I, I feel like... That maybe it undermines that character a little bit. I guess also it, it, it just is supposed to be the the end point of where that character is in terms of why else would you have him be a postal employee if you weren't going to bring that back. Liam, am I wrong here? Am I, am I completely off base in, in finding that a little bit uh, weak for the movie? No, I mean, I wouldn't say you're completely off base. I will say timing-wise... Uh, 1996 is when I first saw the punk band, the disgruntled postal workers. Right, so right. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with that was still a live thing for many yeah. people at that time. In fact, I think the last one of those incidents was actually in the later 90s, after mm. the fact, because I think the band ended up changing their name because it became a little too real for them. Uh, uh, but yeah, I think that uh, on the other hand, I think it's an issue of if we're supposed to have sympathy for that character or not. I think. If we're supposed to feel sympathy for that character, uh, besides just his sadness, but that we actually feel bad for him, it, it under it undercuts that a little bit in a way that I don't think Cordelia gets undercut. And in fact, I think even the scene we have with her being with um, the jerk, you know, and 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 he goes up to the room with her, or whatever, is kind of actually. Uh, uh, turn on its head a little bit when we get the big reveal sure and it's not a sexy sexy it's her zapping his nipples <laughs> i think that's actually like a smart decision like this Absolutely. wasn't an opportunity to get your standard uh sex scene you know even if it's you know a shot from behind but it's sort of your whatever you would expect and you know sexy whatever the fact that she's actually uh in some sense dominating and inflicting pain on him is kind of like a fun turnaround for that time period um and and, and is like a smart decision what I haven't been able to figure out is if we're supposed to have sympathy for the postman character or not. Because right. the reveal that he's actually stealing mail just makes him more pathetic in a certain yeah. way. And maybe his desire for her is not – we're not supposed to feel sympathy for him. We're supposed to see him as somehow mm, – uh, a problem or something you know what i mean like even though she's yeah. even though he sticks up for her that in the end he's he's there's something sort of wrong with him anyway uh if not if that's not what we're supposed to think then it's a cheap joke that doesn't really need to be there other than to give them explosives for a cool explosion you know <laughs> yeah. what i mean and 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 that's a so so i think it's it might be okay it does seem to undercut a little bit of how much sympathy you're supposed to have for him but i've never been sure if we're supposed to feel sympathy for that character or not that's fair. Heather, you had something there? Well, I was going to say also, I mean, if you think about it, like he was, you know, here's a guy where you find, you find out like he was going to try to do all these things. But ultimately, he has all these big, huge guns, but there's no bullets. So how True. serious yeah. was he? Like he <clears throat> he had grenades, but like he just he had no bullets to the guns. Like what was the ultimate like what was the game plan for him? Um, which I think sort of goes to show just how like off he was where he was 
you know, he thought he was going to do these things, but I don't, I don't know that it was like maybe was. a fantasy as opposed to exactly. Like that, he right, wanted right, to be right. sort of like the, the badass guy who goes and does this in the name of love. But ultimately he was too, too much of a, a wuss to really ever, you know, sort of, I don't want to say pull the trigger cause that's like, a, you know, a pun, sure. but mm-hmm. I mean, it's what the Crypt Keeper would say. Um, <laughs> that's true. That's true. But yeah. He, I don't, I don't know that he actually would have ever gone through with it to be honest. Um, had he not gotten fired. Um, I want to move on to talk about uh, Dick Miller in just a moment. But one thing I do want to mention, since we haven't talked about it yet, is that this movie has a framing uh, a story where we actually see the Crypt Keeper filming a horror movie. Uh, it does have an excuse to put some more skin into the movie. Also has a small appearance by John Larroquette <laughs> as the killer. Uh, hey... It's funny because I again I was an adult or a teenager in the mid nineteen nineties and John Larroquette in in that moment uh, his reveal in this would have been like so funny to me and now watching it in twenty twenty it's still really funny to me but it I can only imagine there's a lot of people watching this movie who are like who is that supposed to be it's just some actor yeah John Larroquette was this <laughs> big deal for a long time uh, but I, but again I really do like that that uh, portion of it but I want to get your thoughts Heather what do you think you know we talked a little bit in the opening segment about the Crypt Keeper as a character, as a mainstream presence, as as you said, as doing these dad, dad jokes. What do you think that 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 character? What what is its appeal to people? I think even to this day, what what do you think people were really drawn into that made this character able to become you know the kind of thing that would appear at award shows or record an album? Um, I mean, I think it's just like his you know the sense the dry sense of humor. Um, sure. I think also there's something pretty amazing in watching this sort of shriveled up you know, puppet feel like it's so full of life. Sure. Um, you know, and I think it's like, when I think about like sort of quote unquote horror hosts that have meant a lot to me over the years, like Elvira is a huge one. And it was because she had a certain sense of attitude to her. Um, but I think it was a different attitude than obviously what we see with the Crypt Keeper. Um, and I think what's interesting too, is that one, I think this was the most ambitious, they'd ever been with this character yes, um, because he walks around and, you know, all this kind of stuff, um, which we see it, you know, in plain view in the opening and the end, they sort of cheated a little bit and shoot him from the waist up. Um, but it was sort of like the first time, like we really saw him, I guess is the best way to put it. Like where he really felt like he was part of it. If sure. that makes sense. Um, but I think a lot of it obviously is due to John Cassier and like, you know, his, his just brilliant delivery uh, and that cackle, like, you know, yeah, absolutely. If, if you're a kid who loves horror, like as soon as you hear that laugh, like, you know, immediately that's tales from the crypt, you know? Um, and I think it just, just left such a huge impression. And I think also when, when tales from the crypt kind of came along, it was at this point where horror icons are really becoming a part of pop culture. Absolutely. You know, because we're coming on the heels of like the height of like Freddie's popularity you know, Jason to degree was popular, but not quite like the rock star that Freddie was because, you know, sure. Freddie could talk and stuff. And I think there's something really compelling when you can give not just horror fans, but just movie fans in general or pop culture fans in general, like somebody who feels like you could just sit down and have, you know, have a good laugh with or, you know, you just there's a personality to them. Um, and I think that goes a long way. And I think that's one of the big reasons, like if that character hadn't worked so well in that TV show and ultimately didn't work so well in the movies, like I don't know that we would still be talking about the influence of tales from the crypt as much as we, we have today. And I, it's when I was, I was thinking about that too, like 
in terms of, you know, because we always talk about like we don't have any new icons in the genre, which is probably sure. true because I think we're a little more character driven now than we are villain driven. Mm. Um, but I was just thinking, I was like, you know, why, how has it been like, like 20, you know, 20 to 30 years now since we've really had a character that has caught on? And I actually think like the Crypt Keeper was one of the last big ones to sort sure. of make that big of an impression, you know, in mainstream media, at least. Um, I do, be, because it is a specialty of yours, Heather, I do want to talk a little bit about the special effects. You mentioned before the uh, the kind of uh, birth of the demons scene in sequence in this movie, which is kind of the, the showcase effects scene in it. But there's lots of great physical effects throughout the movie. Uh, they're my particular personal favorite. Uh, and, and your article, which of course we'll link in the show notes today, um, that, that kind of traced the history with uh, interviews uh, from the people involved with uh, Demon Knight. One of the things it mentioned is the sequence where Billy Zane reveals himself and punches straight through the head of so the police amazing. officer is amazing. Uh, even when I saw that for the first time, which probably would have been in the late '90s, my immediate thought was, "That's just like <laughs> a Dead Alive or uh, AKA Brain Dead, the Peter Jackson movie." I didn't realize it was explicitly attributed to that, uh, which was really good to uh, to read. Uh, I think that's my particular favorite. I love the idea of having punched through this person's head and then having to be kind of hampered by the fact that his corpse is, is hanging from your hand as you're trying to get it off. Um, another thing that was revealed in your interview, which I thought was really interesting, is that William Sadler came up with the idea of being uh, handcuffed at the time. So we, th that adds that extra bit of kind of tension as he's trying to get out of the handcuffs to stop everything that's happening. I think that works really well as well. Do you have any other favorite effects in the movie? Yeah, I mean, obviously it's, you know, it's, it's, it's great because whenever you talk about like effects in movies, like a lot of folks don't realize like oftentimes like you bring in like several different crews because you just, it's almost near impossible to like, you know, sure. have one crew just, in charge of everything. So for demon Knight, you know, you have Todd masters who is basically doing all the, the gore gags and uh, all the demons and things like that. And then on the other side of it, you have Kevin Yeager doing the crypt keeper, um, you know, and Kevin Yeager, like, you know, he's basically the guy who gave birth to Chucky. So like this guy has given birth to basically two icons because Kevin was also involved with the TV series as well. Sure. Um, so I like the fact that, you know, as, as much as I love Todd and his work, like, I love the fact that Kevin was still able to kind of keep the reins over um, his character in particular for this movie. And I don't know if a lot of people realize this, but the wraparounds were actually not directed by Ernest. It was uh, mm. Gil Adler who did those. Right. Um, because they who, would just... who would also go on to direct Bordello of Blood. <laughs> well, I mean, you know how that went. <laughs> um, and I say that lovingly. I love Gil. Of course, Gil. of course. Um, but, like, you know, so it's... It's interesting to me because, you know, there's so many, like, it really is a beautiful sort of a showcase for special effects. Um, I think in terms of, like, in the movie itself, I mean, I still, like, I still am in awe of, like, when the Crypt Keeper, like, walks over and he's starting yes. to, like, chastise John Larroquette for his per performance. Absolutely. It's really funny. Um, I, I would have to say, like, in the movie itself, I mean, the head punch is just bananas. <laughs> Um, I also think at the end, um, when Danny punches through William Sadler's chest yes. and then his demon head licks it, like <laughs> sticks the big demonic tongue in there. I'm like, oh, God, it's so good. Um, I really like it really still sells. Like you're just like, oh, man, like that scene is just like it's it's really, really great. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I think those demons are a miracle, too, because, you know, to make. 
the thing is, like, you know, and it's, it's such a common sense thing, but, like, obviously, when you have big, bulky characters, that's easier because, you know, you can build up on an actor. Sure. Where when you have emaciated creatures that can't be animatronic, like, that's a huge challenge because now you have to find performers who can then fit that physicality, but then also can have the ability to sort of bring those characters life through movements. Um, and I think they had a really great uh, team of demons that were actually, I think dancers, if I'm not mistaken, um, right. who basically were able to sort of give, you know, those, those demons like that sway that they'd have when they moved. And I love the fact that like some of them had nipple rings, which I just thought was really funny. Um, like if you really look at the details, there's like, cause they all have a little bit of a, a unique personality, at least like the main four. Um, like they all have like one has like the big ponytail, you know, they all have like their own little quote unquote thing, uh, which again, I think is brilliant. And that's all Todd Masters, um, you know, and his team, you know, that was like sort of their doing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just like, there's just so much good stuff in that movie. Um, you know, I, I think the demon transformations work great. And obviously we should talk about it because it's, you know, we're here to talk about Dick Miller, the scene when uncle Willie gets beheaded and then yes. he's still, his head's still laying on the ground, still talking. Like, I mean, that's, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a classic now. How, how brilliant is it that they, they cover the head to make his body blind? I yeah. love that sort of thing. Again, just a, a kind of a classic gag. Liam, is there any moments that stick out for you uh, effects-wise in Demonet? I mean, you guys covered a lot of them. I, I will say those ni- those demons haunted by nightmares for a while. There's just something about <laughs> the weird way that they move. And I love uh, when I, Billy Zane kisses the one's head, though, as it's being Yes, there. that like, is such an a amazing. Great thing. Yeah. Well, and, and also, they, uh, they're they different. You know what I mean? It's not just one outfit over and over again. Like right. Each of them have their own kind of like look to them. I really appreciated that. Um, and I, and I got to say, it's I guess it's cheesy now, but the commitment to them getting shot in the eyes them shooting the ridiculous kind of lightning effect. Sure. But people who are caught by it being how many actors are thrown against the wall Yeah, mm-hmm. because they did what they were trying to do. Like they got both the eyes and then bam, they're against the wall. <laughs> I, the, the commitment to doing that uh, uh, stunt over and over again, even if it's not convenient, I was, <laughs> I really appreciated that on this viewing. But my, yeah, my, overall, my sorry, just, just to interrupt a little bit, Lee, my favorite yeah, kind yeah. of shortcut for that sort of thing is that they had to do that effect every time William Sadler dropped a little bit of the blood in the doorway. So when he does it upstairs, they just show him like walk off screen and they put a red light up. <laughs> so you don't have to do the right. entire effect. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's being so quite anyways, conscious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, I think uh, uh, the the gore works. It, I, I liked it a lot. The the probably the only thing that ever stuck out to me as weird and still sticks out to me as weird is mm-hmm. I love that he's still gushing blood, which she needs him to be. I think that's the <laughs> only thing of my whole life I've always thought. Man, he's still still pouring out, huh? All right, <laughs> it's been a while, but sure, yeah, he, she could just hit that tap up again. It, it's like so funny because there's so many things I guess that you could stop and your logical mind could say something, and no part of it does that for me except for that one moment. And I go, man, did she have to pump him a little bit first? How'd she get so good again? It's crazy. Uh, I do want to do uh, a quick special mention to uh, the reveal of. 
Billy Zane's true face, uh, the collector at the end, where after he uh, gets defeated, I guess you would say, uh, we see him in his demon form with the wings and things like that. And I, it looks really badass and really cool. I, I wish kind of that we got a bit more of a look at it, but I imagine it's one of those situations where the more he looked at it, maybe the less cool it might seem. But the what we get in the movie, I think, is very, very impressive. Speaking of impressive, hey, this is a podcast about Dick Miller, the actor. We haven't talked a lot about him, aside from the fact that we are suggesting that this is a highlight of the later part of his career, and I think that's very valid. The character of Uncle Willie is introduced pretty early on. Uh, It's actually... It's still at the point where he's introduced. We're not sure about William Sadler's character. We're thinking that he might still be a villain. There's a suggestion he might even stab Uncle Willie. Uh, but Uncle Willie offers him a drink. He is a lovable drunk. A bit of a cliche of a character. But as it goes along, it, 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 he's really humanized. I think he's really shown to uh, to be very sympathetic. The character, other characters really seem to like him. And as we uh, suggested, it's a real three-dimensional performance here. It's so... Comforting. I know that seems like such a strange word, but it's very comforting to see Dick Miller in this. Uh, it feels like he's kind of uh, the the movie's link to horror history in some way. You know, the the same way that you might in the 1980s, and I, I, I apologize for this comparison, but, you know, where John Carradine would show up in a movie and it would be like, this is showing respect to everything that's come before. It also makes us think about the movies that we've seen him in. But, you know, this isn't Walter Paisley. This isn't uh, Futterman in this movie. This is Dick Miller as Uncle Willie, his own character, and he gets a great send-off in this as well with a beheading and everything that comes after. Uh, Heather, what did you think of Dick Miller in Demon Knight? Um, I love him. I mean, that was, you know, again, that was one of the reasons, like, I, I wanted to to highlight this movie in particular sure. um, because there is something very human about Uncle Willie in this movie because, you know, he is a character that you do care about. But I, I think much like a lot of the characters in this movie, I think they're all sort of suffering from their own quote unquote demons, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, everybody sort of has their baggage in this movie. Um, And we see, you know, how Billy Zane is able to exploit that in certain cases and isn't able to exploit it in others. Um, And I think it's, you know, the, the scene, obviously when uncle Willie decides to step over to the dark side, you know, it's, (laughs) it's a funny scene. It's like heightened surrealism. There's tons of boobs. So that's always fun. Um, But there's something really sad about it because if you look, you know, you have Billy Zane, they're basically chewing scenery. And I said that in the most lovingly way possible, um, you know, he's serving up drinks, you know, but the, look on, the, look, the look on Dick Miller's face, especially as he serves that second drink and knowing how powerless he is. You're absolutely right. There's a real there's real pathos going on there. Yeah, it's a real human moment. And it's that moment where, you know, it's coming, but you feel bad. Like you do. You you have this moment where you're like, oh, Uncle Willie, don't do it. You know, I, I know Tracy Bingham pushing your hand, but don't do it. <laughs> Um, you know, and I think it's, again, in a movie that is full of like, quote unquote, big performances, uh, and big characters, um, Willie is sort of one of the more understated, I think of all of them. Um, and I think it's, I think it's a really great sort of balance that Dick Miller's performance brings to Demon Knight, where if you just had all these sort of caricatures, you know, if you will, like, because you have Thomas Hayden Church, who's like obviously the the aggressive asshole in the movie, right, right? You know, and things like that. Like he's he is he is the human sort of quantity of this movie, and I think that's what makes him really relatable. And again, I think it's one of the reasons it's one of my favorites that he's ever done, because it is a supporting character, but yet he has a complete sort of arc 
it's a sad arc. Uh, and it's a very, you know, gory arc at the end there. Um, but there is a journey that his character goes on. And it's a, you know, everybody gets sort of their moment in this movie to in, enjoy sort of their, you know, point A to point B kind of journey. Um, and I just think there's something really lovely about what he's able to bring to the to, to the table for this. I also like that we get the, the other side of him in the yeah. sense that, that once he turns into the demon, then you get Demon Dick Miller, which is not something that, you know, he, he does have sort of a laconic charm in a lot of his roles. And he's got that kind of wise guy uh, accent and all that sort of thing. So when you see him in here finally turn into a villain, uh, it really is a surprise, especially because he's such an aggressive demon once he turns in this movie. It is a really, really fun performance. Liam... Your thoughts on it? Uh, obviously, we are here. This is a Dick Miller podcast. This is a tribute to the man. How do you feel that this performance ranks in the ones that you've seen? I think it's the, I think it's one of the better ones I've seen, and I think it is. I'm trying to think of how to say this, but it, it it's sort of the best option for him still carrying all the weight of being Dick Miller. You right. know what I mean? That. There's a variety of Dick Miller performances that are just him showing up and being like, hey, it's me, Dick Miller. Yeah, exactly. Right, see you later. And this is a, uh, as, as Heather pointed out, the soul of this movie in a lot of ways, the human core of the movie, but it's still reminiscent of who he is. And the one of the more effective moments is when he has turned – and then uh, he turns to Jada Pinkett Smith and his face is back to normal, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's uh, my favorite thing is when a horror movie can do all the things a horror movie does and then also make you feel bad emotionally. Sure. You know? And this movie is mostly a feel good movie. And the fact that it can still get to that point where it's like, not only can I scare you, but I can make you feel real bum too. <laughs> that's, to me, that's. Uh, that's perfect horror in my book is everything here is the standard scary stuff, but also you're going to feel kind of bad about life. That <laughs> the fact that it got to that moment, I was like, Ooh, in a movie this fun, we're still going to make me feel kind of bad. Thank you. Like that is exactly <laughs> what I want. And I think that moment nails it. And it really shows Dick Miller that he could, you could believe him as this like, you know, possessed evil, whatever. But then he has that charming face and, you wouldn't hurt me now, would you? I was like, yeah. oh, man, you know? And so I love that. I love that he has those moments. He's got, you know, the charming old drunk moments. He's both the voice of reason, but also kind of a goofy, you know, uh, source of humor. There's just so much he brings to the role without being the star of the movie that I just think it's it's very emblematic of what I wanted for the later part of his career is this sort of moment to shine but still kind of play off the history that we know who he is. He's not playing uh, out of out of type. It's not, wow, look at Dick Miller in this totally <laughs> unexpected Dick Miller role. But it doesn't feel like a joke or a or a tip of the hat or some other sort exactly. of corny, you know, whatever. The fact is, as we go forward on this podcast, we're going to have times where Dick Miller shows up for 10 seconds, 15 seconds, or he'll show up exactly for that reason that you just suggested. It's like, oh, Dick Miller is here. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with, just like there's nothing wrong when we, uh, on the Eric Roberts podcast, when Eric Roberts would show up for 10 seconds, and it was just, you know, (laughs) because he added a little star power to the low budget movie, something like that. These are all things that working actors have to do sometimes. And Dick Miller is a very unique working actor in terms of the history that he had and the people that he worked with and the affection that they obviously had for him. 
But I think that that affection that the audience has for him is what makes this character work so well in that he's very sympathetic. And so when that turn finally happens, he's the one that, you know, you really do feel bad about. And that there is kind of a wrenching moment when you see him kind of give in to his own limitations there. So I think it's really strong performance. I really think that if you're a fan of Dick Miller and you haven't checked out Demon Knight, eh, you got to make some time to uh, to remedy that because it's a very strong movie, a very fun, a very rewarding movie for fans of horror, and it does have a dynamite Dick Miller performance. Heather Wixon. Yes. I have to thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to talk to us about Demon Knight. I know that these are trying circumstances in the year 2020. I know that there's always work to be doing. I hope that taking a little time out of your day to talk about a movie that we all love and an actor that we all love so dearly uh, was, was, wasn't was too painful, even if Liam O'Donnell, boy, he is frustrating to work with. Believe Ugh, I know the worst. <laughs> Fucking worst. Uh, I I'm a big fan of Heather. <laughs> I'm a big fan, uh, obviously, of Heather's writing uh, and her social media presence and her podcast, really everything involved uh, with the work that you do, Heather. Where can people oh. find you online and where? what kind of work should people be uh, looking out for in the future? Oh, gotcha. Okay. Um, so, yeah, basically, um, you can pretty much find me over at DailyDead.com. Um, I've been managing editor over there, gosh, for uh, quite a while. I'm about to celebrate my seventh year with the site, wow. which is amazing. And we're about to celebrate our 10th anniversary. So that's pretty cool. Um, oh, God. Um, we also, wow, I can't believe I'm like, what do I do again? I'm always so busy. What am I doing with myself? Um we also uh, do the Corpse Club podcast over there at Daily Dead as well. Uh, you can find out more about that over at corpseclub.com. Um, I also recently just launched a new podcast series with Patrick Bromley called Craven Craven. Um, basically because our friendship grew out of our mutual admiration for Nightmare on Elm Street back when we were kids. Mm-hmm. So we thought, well, why not like, you know go back and start talking about all of Wes Craven's, you know, filmography from the very beginning. So last month we did our first episode in the last house on the left. We started off light and airy for all the, for all the families out there that want something to listen to, of course. Um, so yeah, we are, we are doing that through F this movie. Um, so you can find out more information over on their website for that. And it's also, I think in, it's sort of uh, individually launched on like iTunes and things like that as well. And we're, Going to be this month diving into uh, The Hills Have Eyes. And also there's, I'm totally blanking on the name of it. I think it's called The Fireworks Woman. <laughs> I haven't looked it up yet. Um, it, it's apparently some artful pornography that Wes also directed during his sort of Sounds official, right. official uh, career. Um, but he directed under the name of Abe Snake, um, <laughs> which is just a perfect name. We actually made a t-shirt. Where you can actually buy a directed by Abe Snake T-shirt if you're so inclined. I've, um, I've never, I've never seen any of his pornography, but I've been told that uh, even his porno has religious themes. So you have to let me know. Yeah, the one that we we're about to watch, I think it's like a brother and a sister, so it's slightly incestuous, good oh stuff. Um, but the brother wants to be a priest, so I could probably oh, right, can, right. You know, the man so was I obsessed think, with a few themes. Yeah, it's <laughs> well, it's funny because you know he actually went. Wes actually went to school at Wheaton College, which is a very religiously driven uh, college in Illinois. Oh. As a graduate of Princeton Seminary, I am very familiar with Wheaton College. <laughs> nice. so many people who went to Princeton graduated from Wheaton. 
Interesting. All right. Um, yeah. So it's it's it's. Uh, we'll, so we'll see how much I make it through uh, the the fireworks woman or firecracker or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. It was one of those where I was like, I don't even know how to find this movie because I'm so disconnected. I guess from <laughs> porn on the internet. I don't know what that says about me. Um, but yeah. So we're doing the Craven Craven podcast. Um, also, in the next few months, I should have some news as to where fans. Um, and fans of special effects can read sort of the next series of books that I'm working on. Um, they're going to do four volumes. Originally, the book series was supposed to come out through Fangoria. Um, obviously, there was some things that happened earlier this year um, where I just felt like it was time to sort of move away from that. Uh, you know, thankfully, Fangoria is back mm-hmm. with, you know, sort of new ownership and they're taking things in a really exciting direction and I'm so excited for them. Um, but the one thing I am sort of grateful for as the new publisher is kind of looking at this as at a way of sort of being not cost prohibitive to people, um, where the Fangoria approach was going to be like these big, huge coffee table books. And I was excited about it and I loved it. But at the same time, I also, we're in the middle of a pandemic, people are hurting, trying to make bills. I don't want somebody to have to spend like a hundred dollars for a book. Um, because if I can't afford to buy it, why should I put something up <laughs> other people can't afford to buy? Um, so I wanted to do something where people could have access to these things because I just, you know, that's something that's super important to me. So hopefully I'll have news on that as well. Um, and yeah, I think that's about <laughs> it. Um, I am going to be doing interviews soon for the next installment of In Search of Darkness, which I think their presale will be launching in October. So that'll mm. be kind of exciting. Um I have quite a few movies that I get uh, that are on my official docket that I get to dive into that I didn't get to dive into the first time. So I'm very pumped about that. Um, But yeah, that's pretty much it. And if you want to follow me over on social media, I have been off of Facebook for like eight years now, Um, but I am on Twitter at the horror chick. At the Horror Check, we'll, of course, link that in the show notes. We'll also link your work on Daily Dead, specifically having to do with uh, with Demon Knight. Some really wonderful articles there. Wonderful work, as always, Heather. Thank you. Uh, I've already strongly recommended uh, your book. Uh, obviously, uh, the, the upcoming work I'm just as excited about. And, uh, yeah, go over to the Horror Chick on Twitter and make sure that you keep up on what's happening. Speaking of what's happening, Liam O'Donnell, what's happening over at Cinepunks? And where can people find out more about Cinema Smorgasbord and our other related podcasts? Well, on Cinepunks, we are, uh, you know, plugging along. We just finished up our Fantasia coverage um we have some exciting things that i don't know if i can announce yet or not oh my goodness how exciting yeah okay we are uh i think on the next episode of cinepunks you are our guest but the episode after that which is also exciting no disrespect doug (laughs) Uh, but after that (laughs) after that uh aaron from uh the band bane who also is now in that band be well is going to be our guest uh, and we're trying to get some other things uh, going in relation to the upcoming Bane documentary. So uh, I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but we'll see. So keep your eyes out for that. We're pretty excited. I know there's a lot of Baniacs out there. So uh, hopefully folks will get it, get get stoked for that. And I'm excited because Aaron uh, is also a movie nerd, thus confirming the whole theory of our project. Um, so wait, so B- Bane is some sort of, band like a musical band yeah (laughs) right i hate you doug uh also uh, hey is aaron a straight edge individual like you are i don't even know man he is according to his wikipedia page that i'm looking at right this very second i'm I'm moving on here i'm moving on (laughs) 
We also have a, a few new podcasts launching, uh, including one called If You Were Me, uh, featuring Mike from the band Damnation. And he's talking to friends in music about their experiences with mental health and uh, talking about what it's like to be in a uh, touring band while, you know, trying to maintain your uh, positive mental health. Uh, so there, there's a lot of interesting conversations and interviews there. Uh, and that should be launching in a couple weeks. So keep an eye out for that as well. Uh, so you can find all that stuff at cinepunks.com, C-I-N-E-P-O-N-X.com. Uh, if folks just want to know more about this show and maybe catch some of our previous episodes, they can head over to our web- website, cinemasmorgasbord.com. Uh, and they can also find Cinema Smorgasbord on Twitter, cinemasmorg, S-M-O-R-G. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're at, just going to stop right there? <laughs> at, yes, I am just going to stop right there. Sorry, what, no, no, no. What, what, what were you going to say? At what? <laughs> Well, I forgot to say at. I just said the name. Oh, of at. Like, oh, you got to say at Cinema Smorg. <laughs> uh, let, and- let, let me take over from here, Liam. You can find oh, yeah. Liam on Twitter as well, at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. Oh, and, of course, that. you don't need to follow me. You should do it. You tell him how much you enjoy his performance in Creed. Uh, you can, of course, also follow me there as well, at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. If you want to check out more about Cinema Smorgasbord, as Liam mentioned, go over to cinemasmorgasbord.com. We have other themed podcasts, including ones devoted to actors as diverse as Jackie Chan, as Carol Kane, as Vic Diaz, as Steve Buscemi. Lots of theme podcasts over there. And of course, you can check out our previous episodes of You Don't Know Dick. Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook. Just do a search for Cinema Smorgasbord. Uh, if you want to leave us an iTunes review, we'd of course appreciate it very much. But for now, that's enough Dick Miller for today. We will be back again in just a few weeks with another Dick Miller classic. Good night, everybody. <laughs>